Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. It's your host, John Barlow, and I'm excited to welcome today Dr. Aaron Critch. He's a professor of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic. He's the division chair of sports medicine for us here at Mayo Clinic and the head team doctor of the Minnesota Timberwolves. In addition, he happens to be an outstanding three-shield orthopedic surgeon, being outstanding in both clinical practice research and education. Welcome and thanks for coming today, Aaron. Thanks for having me, John. Today, I want to dig into a couple uh, or to a topic that is uh, really interesting, I think, to everybody. One of the most commonly seen injuries in young athletes, and that's ACL uh, ligament injuries. Every year, it seems like we have a rash of them, particularly centered around uh, football. And uh, it seems like it's getting more common. Is that something that is just our perception or the, the publicity of it, or is, is this changing over time? Yeah. So I guess I'll give you two part answer. Um, one is in, in kids and teenagers, unfortunately we are seeing higher rates of ACL injuries and we're attributing a lot of that to, um, really overload. So a lot of, um, athletes at a very young age are specializing. They're playing that sport year round. It doesn't really give their body a chance to rest. It doesn't really give their, um, you know, muscles and proprioception with other activities a chance to develop. So we are definitely seeing an increase in injury rates in that cohort. Um, when you look at the professional sports scene, um, overall year to year injury rates have actually been pretty steady. I think we always see uh, football, as you mentioned, in the fall, and we see this flurry of high injury rate. And football still does produce the most ACL injuries. So I think um, just by number standpoint, uh, we see that. And then like, for example, this season, uh, the, the start of the NFL season, we saw a lot of injuries the first three weeks, but largely that was because we didn't have a preseason. Um, and when you compared it year to year and averaged over time, it was actually fairly stable. So I think in the professional sports realm, things have been relatively steady year to year. And are most of those injuries a result of contact or non-contact injuries? Is it, uh, or, or does it vary based on the, the athlete and the sport? Yeah, it certainly can vary based on sport. But overall, when you look at ACL injuries, about two-thirds are non-contact injuries and about one-third are contact injuries. So, you know, when you look at those contact injuries, um, unfortunately, that's uh, kind of the the, the tuition you play for, you know, contact sport like football, and those really aren't preventable. Uh, we consider those really bad luck. You know, a guy gets his knee rolled up on or something like that, uh, but a true contact injury. Now, the good news, if there's a silver lining, is that two-thirds of these non-contact injuries, um, these are typically due to poor lower uh, body mechanics, uh, poor overall, you know, proprioception and biodynamics. And the good news there is that we can prevent these injuries, um, especially in, you know, sports like soccer, uh, where there's a lot of cutting, pivoting, but not necessarily contact. Uh, we can have prevention programs, which are very successful and definitely worth the time and money spent on them. 
That's great. And um, obviously, the hope is to avoid all of these injuries. But um, in the setting of uh, ACL rupture, I think it's one of the one of the more common uh, knee surgeries that you probably do, and particularly in young athletes. As a shoulder surgeon, I, I'm out of the loop a little bit on all of the different graft choices, but it seems like this field is just evolving. And now I'm hearing about quad tendons and other areas. What, what are your current thoughts and what are the controversies around the different graft choices for ACL reconstruction? Yeah, well, I think you'll uh, still hear from surgeons, you know, graft choice is like asking someone their religion. Um, you know, they have a strong bias towards a graft choice. But what we try to do is we try to use the data. We try to use, um, you know, improvements of techniques to really individualize graft treatment and ask, you know, what's the best graph for this individual, uh, for the sport they're playing, and to really have a discussion because some factors will drive patients to one graph choice over another. In, you know, in, in, in summary, when you look at graph choices, patellar tendon uh, still appears to be the gold standard. Uh, when you compare it to any other graph choice, you will always see that it either does better in terms of graft re-rupture or at least equal uh, or equivalent. Uh, people are still worried about donor site morbidity. I think with modern techniques, we've shown that that actually has decreased over time. So we'll typically use that graft in someone who's scoutally mature, uh, but still playing competitive sports. Um, once, you know, if we have an athlete that's worried about anterior knee pain with a patellar tendon graft, such as like a catcher in baseball um, or somebody like a wrestler, Sometimes they'll be concerned about that anterior knee pain, and that will push us more towards uh, a soft tissue graft uh, like hamstring. Quadriceps tendon has certainly gotten a lot of press the last few years. Um, it is a big, strong graft biomechanically. Um, there were some early failures reported out of Scandinavia, perhaps due to learning curve technique, um, but everything reported since that time looks like it's at least equivalent to patellar tendon. So I think, you know, each surgeon will have their own biases. I think as an ACL surgeon, you should have the entire toolbox and a good discussion with that athlete and, you know, try to have the data lead the conversation, but ultimately make a shared decision with the athlete. Great. And have, have some of the graft choices, like for instance, uh, the use of allografts, is that uh, gone by the wayside or is that still something that you use uh, with regularity in certain, in uh, certain people with an ACL rupture? I think allografts certainly has a role. I think it's incumbent as a surgeon to know that not all allografts are created equal. Uh, there's certainly differences between, you know, allografts with bone versus soft tissue, how they're irradiated, how they're prepared on uh, different things. I'd say in general, the literature is quite clear in a young competitive athlete under the age of 25, allograft certainly does have a higher failure rate. As you get to the older patient, uh, more recreational athlete, they oftentimes want to get back to work and life sooner. Uh, so the recovery from an allograft might be um, appealing to them um, and they might be willing to wait a little bit longer to get back to sport, to wait for that biology to heal in the allograft. Perfect. And uh, do, does the, you, you talked about kneeling sports, does, does their uh, sports activity relate much? So I've, I remember hearing that maybe hamstring choice, hamstring was better for jumpers or things like that. Do, do you do different in the, uh, would you treat, let's say a Timberwolf different than a, a Minnesota Viking in terms of the graft choice? Um, I think it depends. Um, you know, Fortunately, ACL injuries in basketball are actually fairly uncommon. 
Um, but you know, you always have the issue of patellar tendinosis and that's controversial. Some data has shown increased risk of graft rupture with the patellar tendon, um, as that make would make sense. Um, but overall, um, you know, it really comes down to, you know, treating that individual athlete and, um, looking at all anatomic factors, predisposing factors, and of course the rehabilitation, very important, uh, for sports specific return. Perfect. The other thing that I know has been a, in evolution is this idea of sort of uh, some of the technical pearls about, especially the location where you where you fix the graft and over the top positions and vertical graphs and uh, things like that. Can you describe any of your pearls or things where you you think that, uh, let's say, if you've seen ACL uh, re rupture, um, where where people other surgeons have gone astray or where where people have tended to go astray over time. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been an interesting journey. Um, you know, historically with, uh, with the two incision technique, um, we felt that graft position was actually pretty good. Um, of course, when we went to an endoscopic technique, a transtibial uh, did place a more vertical graft. Now, interestingly, those vertical grafts uh, probably didn't see as much tension, so we didn't see a really high rupture rate. Then we moved down the wall into the quote anatomic position. We probably got too far down the wall into a very high tension situation where we were seeing increased graft rates. Now we've moved back up the wall a little bit um, into what we call the ideal position or the isometric position that has uh, the lowest amount of tension. And it's humbling to say and to admit as an ACL surgeon that the most common reason for failure is a malposition graft, particularly on the femur. So I think we really need, you know, if we want to see improvements in overall, uh, you know, surgery and success rates, it's really important that we get each and every uh, femoral socket right when we perform ACL. So I think you have to have a variety of techniques, um, you know, again, relating to the patient's anatomy, but um, hopefully overall, um, we're doing better than we did 10 years ago with ACL surgery. The other thing that seems to be a little bit uh, challenging is understanding if and when um, you're going to encounter other associated pathology. How frequent is it to see meniscal injuries or otherwise that, that require surgical management at the time of an ACL rupture in a, in a young athlete? Yeah, very frequent. I think um, if you'd ask me what's one thing that's changed the most over the last 10 years of practice, um, all the points we hit on. But certainly recognizing and treating meniscal pathology has been right at the top of the list. So we're seeing and recognizing meniscal tears, uh, for example, like a medial meniscus posterior horn ramp lesion, or on the lateral side, a root tear, or sometimes a radial oblique tear near the root. Uh, we're recognizing and treating those with a much higher frequency. We didn't always understand the consequence or significance of those tears, but I think now that we have better recognition, um, better repair techniques, frankly, uh, better rehabilitation protocols. I think overall, what we're going to hopefully see is more stability um, in our reconstructed knees, you know, addressing those important secondary, secondary stabilizers, and then hopefully less arthritis. Uh, Post-traumatic arthritis still uh, continues to be a substantial problem in our athletes over a period of time. So hopefully by recognizing and treating this meniscal pathology, um, overall, that's going to help the long-term outcome of these knees. Yeah, you sure wonder how often those were just sort of driven by in in the older days when we said uh, when we we didn't have uh, quite quite all the techniques for meniscal repair and otherwise. And it certainly will be interesting to follow these these athletes as they go forward with more anatomic graphs and um, some uh, different types of choices there. 
How about um, current thinking on, uh, I, I hear and read about anterolateral ligament uh, in the knee. Is that something frequent? Should that be done always, sometimes, never, somewhere in between? Yeah, it's interesting. So we got very excited about the anterolateral ligament or ALL and, um, you know, about, uh, I guess, five years plus ago now. Um, there's been a lot of um, kind of pendulum shifting uh, now back towards more of a lateral extraarticular tenodesis with the IT band. And there's actually been some very high level multicenter trials looking at very high risk patients, uh, less than 25 that have hyperlaxity. And they have shown with the lateral extraarticular tenodesis in those high risk patients, even in the primary setting, a lower risk of graft failure and a lower risk of subsequent meniscus injury. So um, clearly uh, that has to be in our toolbox or at least uh, thinking, um, even in the primary setting, we used to kind of, re you know, just save it for revision setting completely. But I think in looking at those highest risk patients, um, it's, it's worth considering, uh, especially in, you know, female knees, females that go back to soccer um, and hyperextension. So you should at least be thinking and having that on your radar. Got it. So it, it sure sounds like um, this has become not a one size fits all where it's all BTB. You got to really, you got to really be nuanced in terms of your, of your decision-making about graph choices and, and uh, other structures. It's, it's um, it certainly seems like an expanding world. What's your current thought process and protocol for how to know when to send one of these athletes back to sport? Yeah, so I would say that's something that's been changing as well. You know, um, historically, that's been a, a race <laughs> to get them back on the field as soon as possible. We've learned that second ACL injury is devastating. And statistically, athletes are twice more likely to actually injure their contralateral knee than rupture their graft. So we have to be thinking about both knees. Uh, so that's not only, you know, uh, the athlete getting their body ready, um, you know, such as testing our, our biodynamics and strength and things, but also it's just a matter of time, um, not just for the graft to mature, but for, you know, the cartilage um, to make sure that that's at a good steady state before they're getting back. Uh, meniscus tears are healed, things like that. So I would say average return to resport now time is probably on the order of nine months. Um, we are doing rigorous testing, you know, looking at strength testing, looking at functional testing. If you look at the current literature, I think it's a little bit um, controversial in terms of what test is best. Um, it seems that maybe crossover hop or a timed hop test may be uh, the most indicative, but I think um, those will kind of change over time. So we at least try to hold our athletes, um, you know, accountable uh, we make sure that they're safe uh, before returning to sport. But I think that's an area that we really need more uh, research and answers on. Great. And anything you see coming down the pike in terms of either biologic augmentation, you've, I know you've written and talked some about quote unquote internal bracing of ACLs. Where, where should we look for the field to move in the next few years? Yeah, I think um, people, um, so internally bra internal bracing is, a, is an interesting idea because now that we're putting the ACL in an anatomic position, it, it probably has seen more loads early on. So the question is, can you have some load sharing while the graft is maturing? Um, other groups are looking at um, improving biologic healing, not only at the interface um, and fixation of the graft, but also intraarticularly in the graft as well. And um, you know, people are doing some uh, interesting work. You touched on allografts earlier. 
the rush group is looking at, you know, actually stem cells, um, trying to enhance the healing of these allografts. So I don't think we know enough right now to make a change in clinical practice, but I think it'll be very interesting to see some of these things come down the pipe. Beautiful. I'll sort of summarize what this uh, simple shoulder surgeon got out of this conversation. Then you can close and add any, any further thoughts, but it sure sounds like the rate of ACL rupture continues and particularly with single sports specialization and uh, in young athletes. And it, it, it sounds to me like a, an ACL prevention program is probably a good idea, particularly for young and at-risk uh, athletes. When it comes to tear, it sounds like graft choice has to be really carefully uh, individualized and certainly having a one-size-fits-all transtibial hamstring uh, ACL reconstruction may not uh, get you to the the place that uh, the evidence would suggest in 2020. Um, and uh, it sounds like the techniques continue to evolve too, particularly with addition of meniscal uh, repairs and, um, and uh, extra-articular reinforcement. So it sounds like an area where certainly um, knee specialization and particularly an understanding and being facile with lots of different techniques in the, in the knee. So you can be ready uh, to take care of whatever you need to at the time of surgery is important. And then finally, uh, a careful and uh, progressive return to activity and uh, something like nine months or potentially longer, but mostly being uh, thoughtful about the metrics is, is really important. Any other thoughts that you want our listeners to take home? No, I think, I think you hit all the high points. Um, I think this is, um, you know, an area that will continue to grow, I think we are, you know, uh, objectively improving patient outcomes. Um, I think, you know, over the long term, time will tell. Uh, but I, I, it's a very exciting area. It's, it's rapidly changing. And um, I think it's important to stay on top of all this so you can maintain the best and highest level care possible for your patients and athletes. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us today, Aaron. Thank you, John.